The nature of faith is not doing something, but receiving something. And the only right relationship you can have to a promise is trust. Those two thoughts are essential to Christianity. Without them, you will become a legalist. That is, you will continually fall victim to the lies of your flesh, which the devil has taught you, which is to believe that for you to have a right relationship with God, you must do something. And even if you say that that thing you're going to do is have faith, you will then turn faith on its head and make of faith unfaith. Because faith, when we understand it to be trust, is not doing something. It is receiving something. Now, I think I can explain this with an example from life. I want you to imagine, I want you to think about somebody in your life who you don't trust. They can be from far away, they can be from near. I don't care. I want you to get someone in your head, a a vision of somebody who you don't trust. It's not wrong not to trust them. You have good reasons not to trust them. Now, I want you to try to trust them. Have faith. Just do it. You'll find that it's not how it works. Because faith is not a muscle that you flex. Faith is a bucket that receives trustworthiness. Trust is the result of someone being trustworthy. And so when we say that salvation is by faith, we don't mean it's by us trying to believe. It's by God proving himself trustworthy to us. So that whereas we did not believe, now we do. And in one very real way, there's nothing we can do about it. Now, don't take that the wrong way. You can eventually destroy your trust in Jesus. It's possible, but that's not what the gospel says. What the gospel says is that he's trustworthy. And just like that, he is risen. You have something worth believing. And that is the working of God by the Holy Spirit to save you right now. He's saving you for Judgment Day. He's saving you for heaven. He's saving you for the rest of eternity. But he has already saved you right now. And that trust in him that you now get to exercise in this world where everything else is so untrustworthy, that trust in his word over against what you see, that's his salvation already taking place right now. Just like it did for Abraham who never got to see the fulfillment of God's promises to him in his life with the exception of one son. And remember, the promise is that he will have many sons. He gets to see one son, yet he believes that God is faithful and capable to achieve that promise, and that alone reckons him righteous. That is, God considers him good, not evil, simply because he believes the promise. And this is where, again, the only right relationship you can have to a promise is trust. You can't do a promise somebody else gives to you. You either believe it or you don't. And again, it'll be based upon the value of the one who is promising. So, Romans chapter 4, then, is Paul 
explaining, or I shouldn't say explaining, proving what he taught us last week in Romans chapter 3 about the righteousness of faith, that God has given us a new kind of righteousness that is not achieved by works, but is done by Jesus in our stead. Paul is now going to prove this from the Old Testament. Remember that he's writing to Jewish Christians who are divided from non-Jewish Christians. And even though he's not really focused on circumcision the way he does in the book of Galatians, he is very much focused on reconciling the two by teaching them that it is not by anything that we do from the Old Testament that we are saved, that we have been saved by Christ keeping that law for us. To do this again, then he says, look, the Old Testament not only taught you what to do and what not to do, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal. It didn't just say that, it says that too, but it also teaches the righteousness of faith. And he will bring to mind two examples who are two of the most important people in the Old Testament, Abraham and David. And he will quote texts about Abraham and from David, which say that salvation is a matter of of faith. So what I want to do this morning is run us through that gambit as a bird's eye view. But before we do that, I'm going to have us do two things. We're going to look at a brief passage from chapter 1 and 3. So if you kind of want to start finding your way to Romans chapter 1, that's on page 939 of your pew Bible. But before we look at it specifically, find your way there. But uh, I want to talk about this word counts or reckons, or the way the old Lutherans would say it is imputes. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. It was reckoned to him. It was imputed to him as righteousness. This word's going to show up all the way through this chapter. Paul uses it a whole host of times. I didn't count them, but it's like at least seven times. And it's a very difficult word to translate. I mean, if I just tell you it's imputed, you're going to be like, uh, we don't talk that way, Pastor, and we don't. Well, if I tell you it's reckoned, we actually don't talk that way either, unless you're like from the deep south, right? Like, I reckon I'm going to go to the store. Like, we don't really talk that way. And even the word it was counted to them doesn't quite carry the weight of this very unique Greek word. I'm going to say it and have you repeat it. Legizomai. Say it. Legizomai. Okay? It means... All these things, it means to ascribe, to credit, to accuse, to assign, to brand, to charge, to stigmatize, to pin, to reckon, to calculate, to consider, to count, to view, to see, and to understand. It means all those things. The point of this then is that when God promises you that he has saved you, And that creates in you trust that he's going to do it. To him, that's enough. You're righteous now. He considers your faith in his promise that you're righteous to be righteousness. If you can wrap your head around that, a lot of what we're going to say today is going to fall right into place. But this word count is going to show up again and again. I like the word brand. It was branded as righteousness. I get the image of the steer, right? With that hot flaming iron brand that they put on his rump to make him marked as one who will always be yours. 
I like that idea. It was branded as righteousness or pinned on him or credited to him as a way some translations take it. But the main idea, again, is that you're not actually righteous from you. Something outside of you is becoming your righteousness. And faith is the thing that believes that and then is able to be pointed to as the proof of it. Yeah. Again, not because it's what you do because of what Jesus has done for you. Okay, so here we go. Romans 1 verse 18. This was the opening of that main section on sin. We're going to jump straight from this verse to 321 because they go together. It's the opening and closing of that whole first section. I'm just going to read it here. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now turn to 321. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And we can go to 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. So that's been the message. God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness, but now there is another kind of righteousness which God has revealed in Jesus Christ for your faith. Now let's look at 3 verse 31 right before our text picks up today. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Remember that the law doesn't just mean what to do, what not to do. It means the Old Testament. And so he's asking, does the Old Testament go away entirely? And the answer is no. We uphold the Old Testament. It is the same testimony from the same God of the same salvation through the same Messiah to be received in the same way, which is as a promise that can only be believed. And now again, he's going to teach us about how Abraham and David are examples of this. So jump to chapter 4, verse 3. Where it says, and I've already quoted this this morning, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, you can hear that as trusted God, and it was, there's that word, counted, legitimized, calculated, pinned, branded, reckoned, all those things. It was counted to him as righteousness. Remember, righteousness means goodness, uprightness, integrity, truthfulness, all these things. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now, keep your finger in chapter 4. I'm really going to test you this morning. Keep your finger in chapter 4. Go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This is on page 11 of your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And you'll see that there's the quote. And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, that's God, counted it to him as righteousness. Now, if you can kind of scan with the bird's eye view the page as you turn back, I want you to see that, you see the headings? Before this, before it's counted him as righteousness, he is blessed by Melchizedek. This is this whole thing where he chases down the people who capture Lot, and then Melchizedek comes out, he gives him a tithe. Um, that's Abraham rescuing Lot, chapter 14. Chapter 13, you have the division of Abraham and Lot. 
chapter 12, you have Abraham and Sarai going down to Egypt. And then at the start of chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, you have the beginning of the promises to Abraham. This is important. Abraham has not received circumcision yet in the story. Do you see that? Circumcision is still coming. This is going to be a point Paul will make in a little bit back in Romans. But what happens is not that he receives circumcision and he believes in circumcision and it's counted as righteousness, but it's this promise in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, that is the promise he receives. So we're going to read that. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And look down at verse 7 in the same paragraph. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now jump back to chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. We're going to read that, right? So he's got the promise. Go to this land. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make a great nation and many nations out of you. Verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, that's the fight with the people who steal Lot. That's the issue in Egypt that we just mentioned. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then He said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right. A little bit more of this story. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 2. It's on page 11. When Abram was 99 years old, that's 24 years later. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. In 24 years later, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Look at verse 10. It's on the next page. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. All right. Why do we do that? To make the point Paul's going to make as we go through Romans 4, and you can find your way back to Romans 4 while I talk. The point is that what came first, the commandment or the promise? It's really obvious. The promise. The commandment comes later as a seal of the promise to show the promise to him and everyone else. 
But what comes first? The promise. And what is counted as righteousness? The commandment or the promise? It's the promise. And this is all to establish for us Christians, then, how does God save? Through commandments or through promises? And the answer is through promises. He is risen. Hallelujah. All right. <clears throat> so we left off at Romans 4, verse 3. I'm going to read it again and then go on to 4 and 5. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, Paul, throughout this section, is going to make arguments based upon reason, based upon scripture, and based upon his simple assertion. He's just going to say things like, this is the way that it is. And we can get lost with other Christians who want to feel they have the right to question why Paul gets to say that. The law brings wrath. Why does Paul get to say that? How does he prove that? Why should I believe Paul? We can chase that rabbit, but I think it's a waste of time as Bible-believing Christians to chase that rabbit. I mean, I, I'll do it with you privately if you want, but for our sakes here, I'm going to approach this as if Paul says something, it's true even if he hasn't explained it from reason. But he's going to explain a lot of it from reason. And the point of verse 4 is just that. All of us can understand that when you get a paycheck, you're owed the paycheck. No one gives you a paycheck that you don't earn. And when you go to work and they say, do this and I'll pay you, by the time it's over, you have earned it. It's your due. That's what wages are. So one who does work deserves what they get from it. That makes sense. But now he's going to say in verse 5, there's another kind of goodness that has nothing to do with work. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And again, with Abraham as our example, Abraham had done nothing to receive these promises. He hadn't even believed God enough yet at that point. A common thing that will happen when you talk with other Christians about this, about salvation by grace through faith, even those that are in other Protestant churches, they'll say something like, but don't you at least have to believe? And the way they're talking about believing, they don't mean belief. They mean do something. They mean work. And Paul's point here is actually no. You don't have to believe anything in order for God to promise it to you. You follow where that is? It doesn't mean you're going to benefit from it if you don't believe it. But in order for God to declare you righteous, you don't have to do anything at all. And even after he has declared you righteous, in order for him to keep declaring you righteous, you don't have to do anything at all. Does that mean you're going to go do evil? Actually, his declaring you righteous is going to change you. And so you won't want to do evil anymore. In fact, you'll see your evil more than you ever had before. But the last thing you're going to do then is go take your kind of halfway done good works and hold them up to God as if he owes you something for them. Faith understands that God has prepared your good works for you to do. So even after they've been done, you do the best work you've ever done. The best posture from that is gratitude to God for giving you the good work. 
not holding it up to him as if he owes you something. So the entire posture of Christianity is that we do not work for our righteousness. Now, someone will say, does that mean don't do good works? And I'll say, I just said that's not what it means. But of course, unbelief can't hear this. This is a problem. Unbelief can't hear the righteousness of faith. And so the questions of unbelief will always go back to, but what about works? But what about works? But what about works? Because it's the nature of our flesh, yeah? But Paul here is trying to emphasize, for we who do believe, that really there is no work to do, not for righteousness. Does that mean there's no work to do for your neighbor? No, of course not. There's plenty to do for your neighbor. But God is satisfied with you in Jesus now. Just as, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. When David says, and this is Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now I'm going to read you two more verses from Psalm 32. You don't have to turn there. Verse 5, though, you should recognize. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then, verse 10, you may not recognize, but it's worth hearing Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. David's psalm is about forgiveness of sins. And David, as an exemplar of a man who has a heart for God, of all the kings in the Old Testament, David is the one who has a heart for God. Where does this happen? Was David perfect? Did he achieve a perfect reign? No, not at all. You might immediately think of Bathsheba, but one of the things that comes to mind for me is David's census. Do you remember this story? Is near the end of his life, and David decides to count all the people in Israel so he can feel pretty good about himself and what a great king he is. And it causes a great plague to come upon the people, and many people die as a result of David's sin. So it is not as though David never does evil. But what distinguishes David from many of the later kings is that as soon as he is confronted with his evil, he repents. Huh? That is why David is a man after God's own heart, because when God says to him, you've done wrong, he goes, yes, I have, have mercy on me. And in that, he knows who he's talking to. He knows he's talking to one who will have mercy. And so he can say, blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven, because he's that man. And so are you, the one whose sins are covered, the man against whom the Lord will not count, there it is, reckon, pin on, brand with, your sin. All right. So let's go ahead to chapter 4, verse 13. Back to Abraham. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We've established this point that should make sense to you at this point. Uh, chapter 4, verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now that's interesting to me, especially as you follow Abram's and Abraham's life, he actually makes a lot of decisions 
based not on the promise. Like early on, he does things that are not based on the promise, but are based on not believing the promise. But what you do see take place is the further he goes, the more he believes in the promise. Until after his son Isaac is born and God says to him, now kill the guy I promised you I would bring to you. He goes, all right, I trust you now. You're going to take care of it. And we know from this, he believed in the resurrection of the dead. He believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Yeah. So the point here is he grows strong in his faith. The further he goes trusting God, the more God proves himself to be trustworthy. He is then, therefore, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, let me cut through all of this and move Abraham aside. What does that mean for you now? It means that because he is risen, alleluia, because Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Jesus Christ is fully able to do what he has promised to you. He hasn't promised to give you a single son through whom many nations will be named, but he has promised that the promise of baptism, salvation by his death and resurrection, is for you and your children after you. And to a thousand generations, he will continue to keep them in the faith by this promise. He has promised that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against his church, that is the assembly of those who are made righteous by this call. He has made the promise that we are therefore his body, and as he feeds us with his own flesh and blood, we become that body now, at this time, so that when we die, death will not be able to contain us. And on the last day, we will rise, not as goats to be condemned, but as the sheep of God, the people of his pasture, who will enter into innocence and righteousness and blessedness forever. And he has promised that he is going to give you your daily bread from now until then, so that ultimately, all that your worry does is waste your time and make you less content. Those are all promises. And he is fully able to complete them for you and your faith in him will become more convinced of this every single time you hear them. Which is why it's important that you hear them. Yes. So, verse 22, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Again, because he believed God said he would do it and he believed God could do it. Verse 23, but the words... It was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, verse 24, but for ours also. Huh? So why is Paul bringing this up? To defend Christianity. That the idea of imputation, God's calculating you according to what Jesus has done, rather than what you have done, is something that has been prophesied from long before it happened. And the entire testimony of the Old Testament is there to make this clear. It was written for your learning, to read, mark, and inwardly digest as proof of God's faithfulness, that when he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And so all the things God has promised to you in the New Testament, you may take literally to the bank. Here it is at the end, verse 24b and then Verse 25, it will be, there's counted, reckoned, calculated, pinned, all these things. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now, it's going to talk in the last verse, verse 25, about his death, uh, about his crucifixion. But I want you to see how much the resurrection is at the front end. 
This is something that I, I think Lutherans have forgotten. We love our theology of the cross, and for good reason. Precious Savior who died for our sins, who was scourged for our iniquities. There you see the atoning sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. That is all true. The good news of it being true begins with his resurrection. It begins with the fact that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And this is what verse 25 insists we not forget. Because he was delivered up for our trespasses, right? He was crucified for our sins, but he was raised for our, now it says, justification. That's okay, but it's not the normal word for justification. So I want you to hear it differently. He was raised for our vindication. That's a little different, right? When you go to court and you plead innocent and you come out declared innocent, that's justification. When you go to court and you plead innocent and they've slandered you and they've told lies about you and everyone believes you did it and you come out innocent, now you've been vindicated. Huh? And the resurrection is the vindication of the cross. That is, when he's dying on the cross, how would you know that he's God? He's dead now. All his apostles, they flee, they hide, they weep, they mourn. He rises from the dead. He reveals himself to them. And what now? Now they say, you are my Lord and my God. Does this set the resurrection against the cross? No. And that argument, which if you go search online, you can find people who will argue the resurrection versus the cross. Which one's more important? Like that is stupidity. It is the essence of stupidity. And that is not what I am advocating. But what I am advocating is that when you talk to your friends and neighbors who do not believe about Jesus, don't start with the cross. Start with the resurrection, because that's the vindication. That's the sign. That's the proof. And then, what did he rise from? The cross. What did the cross do? Saved you from your sins. Yeah. And that is, again, 24 and 25. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our vindication. The righteousness of faith. Trusting in someone who is trustworthy, one who cannot earn it, cannot do it. You cannot make a promise happen. But what you can, not can, what you will do, because the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, has been sent into your heart, is you are going to believe the promises when they are declared to you. You're going to have your eyes opened to see that you are one who is blessed. How? Because God has forgiven you. And so all the other trials and sufferings of this present age, they're blessings too. Why? Because they remind you that God has forgiven you. They tell you to go back to your God who has you in his hand. And there again, he declares not only that he's going to raise you from the dead, but that he's going to give you daily bread. Which I think for our times is incredibly important to remember. There's all sorts of rumors out there right now about food. I know you've probably heard about baby formula by now. Where does the food come from? Does it come from global supply chains? Does it come from banks and industry? Does it come from the American market? Does it come from the American government? Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to ask that because Jesus has promised to answer that. Yes? And in this then, as you sojourn through this wilderness, wondering where the next bit of raven or manna is going to come from, you also know that though it all collapse, you're walking towards something that shall never collapse. 
And on the day of your death, which will be better than the day of your birth, you will enter into a glorious righteousness earned for you by your Savior, Jesus Christ. The sin which you still carry, which still threatens to entangle you, will be stripped away. And you will lift up your eyes and your heart eternally as one without any trespass at all. And of course, of course, I also don't look forward to my death particularly. I'm not excited about cancer treatments or any such thing like that. I more prefer that our Lord would return in the twinkling of an eye, just make it all change in that glorious moment. And so I pray, come Lord Jesus, when I sit down to eat and everywhere else. Yeah, All of that based upon not maybe, not will it, not could I, not if I only, but rather on he did, he has, he can. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise for prayer.